I'm going to uh, start today by what is probably the the, the earliest um, mention of meditation that we find in the Pali texts. And this is a, a passage, a fairly famous passage from the Maha Sakaka Sutta, uh, which is the 36th discourse in the middle length sayings. And this is uh, Siddhartha Gautama, uh, the Buddha, uh, speaking. I recall that when my father, the Shakyan, was occupied, while I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first absorption, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. This refers to an, an incident that occurred to uh, Siddhartha Gautama while he was still a child. Now, we don't know exactly how old he might have been. I suspect he was probably more than five. My imagination would be that he was maybe a young teenager at this point. But it gives us a glimpse of two things. One, of the world in which he grew up. And two, of this sudden finding himself in an unfamiliar state of mind. A state of mind for which he would have had nothing within his religious upbringing, his culture that would have affirmed or talked about such things. It's as though, almost by chance, he created for himself or conditions conspired for him to enter into this state of mind. One pictures his father, the Shakyan, being occupied. Sometimes this is understood as as working in the fields. And he, as a young man, um, as young teenagers often would do, would be a little bit bored with all this activity and would slip away into the shade of the trees at the side of the field and just sit down, chill out, relax. And suddenly he finds himself in this state of mind. Now, there's an enormous literature in Buddhism, an enormous range of diverse opinions as to what, in fact, constitutes this first absorption. My own sense is that as Buddhism has become more and more institutionalized and professionalized and somehow um, the preserve of specialists and priests and monks and so on, the, the, this first jhana, this first absorption, has, as it were, become 
uh, as it were, ratcheted up on the scale of spiritual accomplishment. Um, If you look, for example, um, in the way in Tibetan Buddhism how the first jhana is achieved, it almost seems humanly impossible. Some of you might be familiar with that picture of the monk chasing the elephant and the monkey up this winding path. And that describes what are called the nine stages of mental karma-abiding, which culminate in the first jhana. Other texts, and I would suggest this very classic description we find here, repeated again and again, um, is really not so um, uh, high-flown and impossible as sometimes the jhanas are described. What is distinctive about this description are really three things. First of all, this is a state in which the mind is focused and concentrated and self-aware. But not to the point where the capacity to think critically has fallen away. The very beginning of the description says, an absorption of mind accompanied by applied and sustained thought. This is vitaka and vichara. Two technical words. Again, it's not quite clear what they mean. But both of them have to do with the ability to uh, sustain and apply thinking. In other words, meditation in this sense is not about getting into a kind of trance-like state of any kind. It's certainly a far more focused state of mind than is usual. It's not scattered and distracted and sloppy and dull. But it hasn't, as it were, become so focused that any kind of critical thought has somehow either become marginalized or even lost but it's able to differentiate, to see clearly, to analyze, to look deeply into things. It's also a state of, and the text here says rapture. My own sense is that rapture in English somewhat overstates the the actual subjective feeling. I would take it to mean uh, a sense a deep sense, perhaps, of contentment and well-being. And in addition to that contentment and well-being, there is also pleasure born of seclusion. In other words, although the image suggests literally a physical seclusion, which in some sense is important, I think the key to it is a sense in one's own body-mind complex of feeling self-contained and entirely comfortable with one's being alone. There's no hankering after some kind of object, be it another person, be it another place, be it some other sensory stimulation, but rather the ability to feel entirely okay and at home, 
and comfortable in just being here. Now that, I feel, was remarkable for this young man, probably because he'd never experienced such a thing before. It suggests also a world in which, again, not that differently from our own, in which much of one's time and energy is locked into things other than oneself, whether they be objects, other people, situations, the past, the future, whatever it might be, that we only feel as though we can really be at ease or comfortable provided that we have established certain connections, relationships, a sense of identity with something other than ourselves. So this is an experience of a self-contained well-being rooted in a feeling of independence of mind in which we can focus in on what matters most deeply to us in a sustained and critical and reflective way. Now I think it's up to all of us really to to see, well, where do I stand in relation to that? To what extent can I recognize my own meditation, be it some of the time, very occasionally, most of the time, as somehow fitting with that frame of meditative awareness? But I'd also like to explore the context in which this young man found himself at that time. There's a tendency in Buddhism to take these mental states and somehow extract them from any social environment and present them as things that somehow exist in and of themselves. Who was this young man? Uh, Siddhartha Gautama, what sort of place did he live in? What kind of society was he a part of? What kind of economy operated in the place where he lived? All of these questions, I feel, give us a sense of, of, of the specificity of his time and place that enable us to, as it were, give a a third dimension to the otherwise rather unidimensional sense we sometimes have of meditative states. Now Siddhartha Gautama belonged to a family, the Gautamas. His father was a man called Suddhodana, who was the leading figure in the local assembly that governed the community. Shakya was the name of that place. Um, It would have been largely a rural agricultural community. Um, There would have been no... Um, significant uh, buildings made of 
stone or brick, but rather the town of Kapilavastu, which was the main town, would have been one made largely from organic materials, of, 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 of wattle and daub, of wood, of mud, maybe some sun-baked bricks and thatched roofs. The economy would have been predominantly agricultural. And also, since Kapilavastu was on the main trade route, as we can see on our map, between Savati or Shravasti and Rajgaha, Rajgir, then it would also have been a trading post. And perhaps that gave it, unlike other rural areas of northern India, a, a certain, a, a slight cosmopolitan feel. It would have also been a place where trade would have been carried on, there would have been markets. And this would have enabled some of the leading families, particularly the Gautamas and their relatives, the Kolyas, um, to have become perhaps rather better off than most other similar communities of that area. The Shakyans uh, governed themselves uh, by a form of uh, representative assembly. Shakya was effectively um, a confederation of tribes and clans. And the way in which their affairs were governed were by regular meetings in an assembly hall, um, quite clearly described in the Pali texts, an, a building with pillars, probably round, with a thatched roof, and probably in the central square of Kapilavastu, where the leading members of the main families would gather. Uh, Suddhodana, the Buddha's father, would have been something like the chairman of the assembly. And they would discuss the affairs of Shakya, and they would arrive at decisions probably democratically rather than by consensus and would thereby have ruled over their land. Now Shakya um, was not very large, uh, probably not more than uh, a couple of hundred miles uh, to east and west, north and south, possibly less. But it was divided uh, by a river uh, called the Rohini River to one side lived the Gautamas, to the other side lived the Colliers. And these were the two principal families. And they often fell into dispute because of access rights to the river Rohini, which they depended on for the irrigation of their crops. So in order to somehow cement their alliance, they um, intermarried rather furiously. <laughs> and Suddhodana's wife, Maya, the father of Siddhartha, was a woman from the other side of the river, a Kolya. She was the uh, sister of the leading member of the Kolyan family, a man with a rather curious name of Super Buddha. 
And Superbuddha had two sisters, um, uh, Maya and Pajapati, both of whom were married to Suddhodana, the Buddha's father. As we know, shortly after the Buddha's birth, uh, Maya, his mother, died. And from that point, he was taken care of as a baby and as a young man by his aunt and his stepmother, Pajapati. Suddhodana's sister, Amita, was married to Superbuddha. So it was a crossover thing there. And Superbuddha and his wife, Amita, had a son and a daughter. The son was called Devadatta, and the daughter was called Badakachana. Sometimes she's called Bimba, which I like, for the <laughs> euphony of it. And, you, and Bimba, Badakachana, was given in marriage to Siddhartha. So across the generations, they just zigzagged um, in marital alliances. Now, who were these people, the Shakyans? They saw themselves as descendants of the sun king, Okaka. Again, probably a, a, one of the deities within the early Aryan pantheon. And they also were identified with the Aryan race. Now, the Aryans were a group of people who probably started out somewhere in central Europe or Asia, we're not quite sure, and migrated into the Indian subcontinent about 1,500 years before the Buddha. And in doing so, they carved out a territory for themselves in the broad Gangetic Basin, an alluvial plain, immensely fertile. And there they established their, their culture and their religion and their settlements. In doing so, uh, they displaced the local indigenous tribal peoples uh, who were probably of a darker skin color than themselves and were probably still at a hunter-gatherer stage um, of uh, human society. But we also need to note that their migration could well have been a factor in the destruction of a civilization in the Indus Valley region, which is in now in modern-day Pakistan, um, which was in many, many respects far more advanced than Aryan civilization. Two things that um, were developed in the Indus Valley civilization, the main cities being Harappa and Mohendaro, were writing and kiln-fired bricks. The Aryans, at the time of the Buddha, had lost the, 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 they, they did not have writing. So the Buddha would have been brought up, 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 up in a non-literate culture. They also did not have kiln-fired bricks. In other words, they, um, 
do, did not leave for us any uh, archaeological remains. So it's a quite a, a, a simple uh, society, uh, a simple community, of which very, very little survives today in the way of artefacts. The only things that have been recovered from that layer of archaeological digging are um, a certain kind of grey schist pottery and, um, and, and gold coins, kahapanas, little square coins punched with the seals of banks. That's effectively all we have from that period. Now, the, the fact that these uh, people were uh, farmers... Um, is particularly clear uh, from uh, a passage I'm going to read out to you from the Vinaya. Uh, this is um, Mahanama, uh, one of the Buddha's cousins. He was the son of Amitodana, Suddhodana's younger brother. He had two brothers, Anuruddha and Ananda. And after the Buddha's enlightenment and the Buddha came back to Kapalavastu, um, many of the younger men of good family chose to renounce the world um, and join the community. Now, the description that Mahanama gives us, I think, evokes very clearly the sort of society in which the Buddha grew up. There's a bit of a dispute. Mahanama and his brother Anuruddha are debating over who should go to the Sangha, who should become a monk. And Mahanama... Um, tries to persuade Anuruddha, and then Anuruddha says, oh, but I'm very delicate. It's impossible for me to go forth from the household life into the houseless states. Why don't you do it? And this is how Mahanama persuades his brother. He says, but come now, beloved Anuruddha. I will tell you what is incident to the household life. First, you have to get your fields ploughed. When that's done, you have to get them sown. And then you have to get the water led down over them. Then you have to get the water led off again. And then you have to get the weeds pulled up. And then the crop reaped. And the crop carried away. And then you have to get it arranged into bundles. And then you have to get the straw picked out and the chaff removed. And then you have to get it winnowed. And when that's done, you do just the same the next year. And the same all over again the year after that. The work's never over. You, don't never see, you never see the end of your labours. When shall we, still possessing and retaining the pleasures of our senses, ever come to rest? Yes, beloved Anuruddha, the work is never over. Even when our fathers and forefathers had come to the end of their lives, even then their work was unfinished. So this is very much a society that is... Um, governed and, and, and dictated to by the cycle of seasonal agrarian work. The Gautamas were certainly a well-off family. Um, they would probably have had their slaves do a great deal of the hard manual labour and they would have profited from that. In other texts it talks of the Buddha having had different houses in which he spent different seasons of the year. And we need to remember, too, that this was a slave society. The whole of North India at that time was. 
and the slaves were very probably the indigenous tribal hunter-gatherer people who were captured and enslaved by the Aryans. Now, politically, uh, Shakya, at the time of the Buddha's birth, um, was a province of the kingdom of Korsala. And you can see on your map in big letters to the uh, west of Shakya, Korsala. We have, um, again, a very clear uh, statement of this from a passage in the, uh, the Sutta Nipata, where after the renunciation, the Buddha arrives in, in Rajgir, and the king, Bimbisara, meets him and uh, asks him where he's come from. And he says, in that direction there is a people king living on the flank of the Himalaya, endowed with wealth and energy and belonging to the kingdom of Kosala. They are Adicha by clan. Adicha means the sun. In other words, they feel themselves to have been derived from the god of the sun. And they're Shakya by birth. They're born in this place called Shakya. So Shakya was, uh, as it were, the easternmost province of the expanding kingdom of Kosala. The Buddha was born at a time when the kind of republican society in which he was born was really being overshadowed and incorporated into expanding forms of autocratic monarchy. Now, the reason I'm mentioning all this is because in order to understand the, uh, the Buddha's work and his life, we have to see that both his family situation and the conflict between his, the two sides of his family, as well as the tensions between Shakya and the kingdom of Kosala, are um, forces that drive his life right to the very end. And as this week proceeds, we'll be referring back to those um, aspects of his life. Now, I also feel that um, his decision to leave home was driven by these same conflicts and tensions. In addition, though, he seems to have been an extraordinarily intelligent, sensitive and charismatic young man. Someone who was able to see beyond uh, the limitations of his time and place and awaken to the conflict of being human. And we have here... um, in the Majjhima the middle-length sayings, the, the 26th discourse, it's called the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, which is translated as the Noble Quest, in which he himself describes what led him to leave the household life. And he talks of this in terms of two kinds of quest, which he calls the, the Noble Quest, and the ignoble quest. Now, noble 
is Aryan, the Aryan quest. The Buddha sees himself as part of these of the Aryan culture, but what he does very systematically throughout his teaching is to transform the notion of Aryan from a racial to a spiritual idea. So what is the ignoble or the non-Aryan quest? I'll read from the text. Here, someone being himself subject to birth seeks what is also subject to birth. Being himself subject to ageing, he seeks what is also subject to ageing. Himself subject to sickness seeks what is also subject to sickness, and then the same with death and sorrow and defilement. And what may be said to be subject to birth and sickness and ageing and sorrow and defilement? And again, now we get a glimpse of his world. He says, wife and children are subject to birth, men and women slaves, goats and sheep, fowl and pigs, elephants, cattle, horses and mares, gold and silver are subject to birth. These objects of attachment are subject to birth and one who is tied to these things infatuated with them and utterly committed to them, being himself subject to birth, seeks what is also subject to birth. So this insight of his, he recognises that here he is, this man who is subject to birth, sickness, ageing and death, and yet he is totally um, absorbed, totally... um, chasing after things that are likewise subject to the same things. There's no end to this, he sees. That he's just running around and round and round, chasing his own tail, as it were. And it's here that he begins to explore the possibility of something greater, something more transcendent. And he asks himself, so why being myself subject to these things, um, do uh, suppose that myself being subject to birth, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, I seek the unborn supreme security from bondage, Nibbana. Suppose that be myself being subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow and defilement, having understood the danger in what is subject to such things, I seek the unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme security from bondage, Nibbana. Now whether he actually thought in terms of Nibbana and all these things at the time may be a little questionable, but clearly he saw that his life in Shakya, this round of farming, as Mahanama so beautifully puts it, and the fact that he's really caught in a cycle of responsibilities and obligations, with very little prospect of much else, given his family disputes, given the uh, encroachment of Kosala over Shakya, this is what then drives him to leave Shakya. And so at some point, and this is normally regarded as shortly after the birth of his son Rahula, he um, decides to go forth. And again, he describes this. He says, Later, while still young, 
a black-haired young man endowed with the blessings of youth in the prime of life, though my father and mother wished otherwise and wept with tearful faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and went forth from home into homelessness. Now going forth from home to homelessness was an idea that was already current uh, during his lifetime. And this was made possible not because of some, you know, some sudden resurgence of spiritual ideas, but largely because it was economically viable. A young man can only um, leave home and survive from begging alms and not be part of the productive economy if and only if there is sufficient surplus for him to live off or live from. Again, one can't underestimate the importance of this. It was The Buddha was born at a time when we had the emergence of trade, of cities, in which the economy was generating surplus, and surplus wealth. And two things were made possible by this, which are crucial elements of what defined the Buddha's life. One, it freed a certain percentage of the male population to explore questions of meaning and purpose and truth and value. And the second thing is that it enabled the emerging kings to, um, pr- to generate armies. It's, the, it's religion and war were the two things made possible by this surplus, which then become very much the driving forces of what happens to the Buddha during his lifetime. So he would have been aware, probably from a young age, of these wandering mendicants, these, um, those who have gone forth, literally, who would have drifted through Kapilavastu, whom he would probably have met during his childhood, who may have even settled in Kapilavastu for some period. And this, I think, seems to have been the inspiration that gave him the idea that something else was possible. Now, we spoke yesterday of faith or confidence and how that is so often triggered by the example of others who have, in their own lives, transcended what it is that we feel limited and trapped by. So the Buddha, or Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha-to-be, would have joined these groups of wandering ascetics. There's a lovely expression in the Sutta Nipata in which he describes the difference between home and homelessness. He says, in a home... Life is stifled in an atmosphere of dust. But life gone forth is open wide. Life gone forth is open (coughs) wide. Now we can understand this both literally, in that he feels that his life is somehow at a kind of dead end in Shakya, just going round and round and round. And he then chooses to depart 
into the life that is open wide. And it's here perhaps that we get the, uh, the, the, the sense of what a path would have meant for him in the literal sense. He would have set out on the open road. There would have been no other opportunities for such a young man at that time to have experienced travel or wandering. He would have just been contained within his local environment. The wanderer is not just somebody who who begs and meditates, but also somebody who is on the road. And the road is open wide. One One has the freedom now to explore, to go to places where one had never thought one would ever have had the chance to go. But of course it's also deeply tied in to what we would call now a spiritual or a religious quest. And in this sense, the going forth is a psychological, an existential experience that we call renunciation. And this is very much integral to what we spoke of yesterday as practicing or creating a path of going beyond one's limitations, of setting forth into an unknown world. Now, I'm not suggesting, of course, that to practice the Dharma we need to literally uproot ourselves from our homes and go off somewhere else, although some of us might choose to do that. But rather, we would understand this as a shift in our priorities, in our perspectives on life, in what we regard as most important and valuable for us in this existence, and be willing to take the risk to live in another way. To not be dictated in our behavior by what is both socially um, conventional and expected of us, and nor in our minds to just repeat the received opinion of others, of our culture, of our religion, of our society, but rather to have the willingness to explore other possibilities. And so it describes once again a movement from a state of of stagnation, and again the image of the household life is stifled in an atmosphere of dust, I think that may speak to us not so much of our failure to have done the vacuum cleaning last week, (laughs) but rather our our mental condition in which we feel everything has become rather stale and dull and uh, and a bit kind of uh, uninspiring, uh, flat, opaque. And we seek, at least in theory, to somehow move out of that. Now again, as we know, it's a nice idea, but in practice it's rather difficult to do. And what we find in meditation is that in spite of our, our sincerest um, intentions and our most uh, committed efforts, we keep finding ourselves again and again and again caught in the same patterns of thought, patterns of feeling, patterns of emotion, maybe physical patterns, that just keep on insistently and relentlessly affirming themselves. 
And one of the strangest things in the practice of meditation, it seems to me, is that although what we're asked to do is extremely simple, sit still and watch your breath, just because it's simple doesn't mean at all that it is easy. In fact, it sometimes feels it's the most difficult thing one has ever attempted. And even if you have had you know, very deep and powerful experiences on retreats or, or in other contexts, and you can affirm the value of awareness, mindfulness, compassion, and these things from your own experience, even then you find you sit here for 45 minutes and the mind is totally caught up inescapably with some mindless, trivial stuff. In other words, the dust has really got a hold on us. And that can be terribly frustrating. We want to do this, but we can't. It's very um, powerful what is actually keeping us trapped in this, as it were, um, cyclical, repetitive condition of frustration and pain. And that, I think... It's that condition, as it were, that evokes for me one of the the core senses of dukkha, pain. It's not physical pain or mental pain so much. It's just this this sense of of frustration, this sense of of stuckness, this sense of entrapment from which, through simple force of will, we cannot escape. So this is the condition, I feel, in which the Buddha too found himself, both mentally, existentially, socially, politically, he was trapped. And that's what led him to leave home. But leaving home, renunciation, is not just a matter, therefore, of leaving behind what you don't like, which is often what it's thought of, Um, but it's just as much an opening up to a new set of possibilities. It's um, aspiring to something greater. It's aspiring to um, a way of being that is free, that is open, that is infused with a greater understanding, with a greater love for oneself, for the world, So renunciation is very much um, not an aversive reaction, but rather a willingness to let go of what you feel entrapped by, and a willingness, despite all the risks, despite all the uncertainties, despite the hardship and perhaps the rather um, uh, difficult things you'll have to encounter, is somehow now felt to be worthwhile. And I think all of us at some level, if we've chosen to spend our time on a retreat like this, will have some sense of what that means, you know, in our own context, in our own lives. And this is very, I think, crucial to what it means to open up and to create and to pursue a path. We also know that spirituality or religion can become just another kind of habit or trap. And there's nothing, I think, in this world that is 
immune to more collecting of dust. And arguably, um, the institutions of Buddhism, when they become primarily residential, cenobitic, monastic communities, have as much the same problem of dust settling as do any other kind of so-called worldly life. In fact, nowadays, to become a monk in a Buddhist country or even here in the West is for many people, and particularly in Asian societies that, in which there is a great deal of poverty, are actually places of security, well-being, where you'll get at least one good meal a day and you'll have security for the rest of your life. Now, is that really homelessness, or is it just another kind of home? And in some regards, um, to embark um, on, let's say, teaching meditation um, as a layperson is in many respects far more insecure, far more homeless, than it would be to become a monk and live in in a monastery. So we have to, I think, continually rethink what homelessness means. And to see that it's that condition of uncertainty, that condition to live one's life from that place within oneself that one feels to be the most true, the most authentic, that that entails risk, that entails living with uncertainty, that entails accepting insecurity, it entails giving primary value to what really counts in this highly ephemeral, shifting world. So when the Buddha leaves, when Siddhartha Gautama leaves home, where does he go? He goes down to Rajgir. So if you look on your map, you'll see that um, a couple of us do, or Shakya, all the spellings are in Pali, and I'll sometimes be pronouncing the words in Sanskrit. We'll just have to get used to that. Couple of Atu and Sakya. He then takes the trade route, that's that dotted line that's heading southeast, through Kusinara, through Mala, which is the, another part of Kosala, to the city of Vishali. He then continues south from there until he reaches the Ganges. He crosses the Ganges, probably at Pataliputta, modern-day Patna, and then he follows the dotted line down to Rajgaha. Now, why does he go there? Why doesn't he go off into the Himalayas and go into a cave and meditate? (laughs) Effectively, um, he goes to the largest city, the most powerful place on earth in his world at that time. It's a bit like, if you've, I've just read the chronicles of Bob Dylan, a young man from Duluth, is that how you pronounce it? Duluth. Um, where does he go? Uh, he goes to New York. It's very similar really. I'm not suggesting the Buddha was a, uh, an aspiring folk musician. <laughs> But in order to um, go, in, in order to, to, in leaving Shakya, he's leaving behind him effectively a rural backwater. 
and he's heading for the heart of culture and civilization of his time to um, a city, Rajgir, enclosed by a circle of hills, very naturally defended, with huge stone ramparts that you can even see today, um, a source also of um, mining, one of the main production centers for metal, for iron ore, and the emergence of an extraordinarily powerful empire. And the king of that time, Bimbisara, who plays an important role in the Buddha's life, seemed to have been a man of considerable culture who sought to support all of the different non-Orthodox religious groups of that period. And it's striking that in the Sutta Nipata passage I cited, the Buddha arrives in Rajgaha and um, the king gets word of this man and is very impressed by him. There must have been something about Siddhartha Gautama um, who some, something about him that stood out. Uh, and the king says to him, you are young and tender in your first youth, endowed with good, good complexion and stature, like a warrior of good birth, making beautiful the head of an army, at the head of a group of elephants. I shall give you objects of enjoyment. Enjoy them. So the king was sufficiently impressed by this young man to actually try to recruit him to his court, possibly as a soldier, possibly as a courtier of some kind, but the Buddha refused. And instead, he went off to seek um, a teacher. Again, very much like um, we might do today. He goes off to in search of the people who are... Um, offering answers to the kinds of questions that he is concerned with. And the first person he, he meets is a man called Alara Kalama. And he approaches Alara Kalama and he asks if he can join the community. And this is what Alara Kalama says to him. He says, yes, you can stay here. Uh, this teaching I have is such that a wise man can soon enter upon and abide in it and can realize for himself through direct knowledge what it is that the teacher is teaching. And Siddhartha says, well, I soon quickly learned that teaching and as far as mere lip reciting and rehearsal of his teaching went, I could speak with knowledge and assurance and I claimed, yeah, I know, yeah, I understand and there were others who did the same. This is enormously reminiscent of... of, of of the kind of Dharma scene that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, you go with some enthusiasm to a teacher and you hear the teachings and you start talking about them and saying, yeah, well, you know, the real re nature of reality is one mind or whatever. And everybody kind of goes along with this jargon. And, uh, but after a while, though, uh, he, the Buddha says, but then I considered it's not through mere faith alone that Alara Kalama uh, teaches, but certainly he abides knowing and seeing these teachings for himself, or this Dhamma for himself. And so he goes to Alara Kalama and says, what is it that is at the root of your experience? And Alara Kalama says, the base of nothingness. The base of nothingness. 
And so then Siddhartha um, uh, becomes uh, adept in dwelling in the base of nothingness and became so good at it that Alara Kalama said, so you know the Dhamma that I know and I know the Dhamma that you know. As I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. Come, friend, let us lead now this community together. So as with King Bimbisaro, Siddhartha clearly very much impressed this man. And what, in fact, Alara Kalama was teaching was a particular kind of meditation. Uh, A meditation that subsequently became incorporated into Buddhist practice as the seventh jhana, the seventh state of absorption, um, which is considered to be a formless absorption in which the mind becomes totally uh, absorbed in what they call nothingness. It's a complete kind of switching off of virtually every faculty that we are currently possessing and um, uh, losing oneself in this nothingness or oneness or whatever we might, or whatever we might call it. But the problem was that although the Buddha was very adept at doing this, it did not actually resolve the um, dilemma that he came with. It didn't resolve the source of his anxiety, his dukkha, his suffering, his conflicts. It simply suspended those problems. It put them out of mind, and while they were out of mind, he was in some sort of blissful, non-reflective, um, non-conceptual state. But once he came down, as it were, from this absorption or came out of it, he was back pretty much where he had started. It wasn't a solution. And this, I think, likewise regarding our own understanding and practice of meditation, we need to bear this in mind. To what extent is, is your meditation practice um, uh, a kind of attempt to lose yourself, to somehow get into some rarefied state of mind, some mystical state perhaps, which is very wonderful, very blissful perhaps, but one that when we return back to our daily life seems to have little, if any, bearing on the reality we confront then. In fact, in some, I mean, sometimes what happens is you get into these wonderful meditative states that actually makes your everyday experience all the more difficult to bear. And in some regards, this is not that different from simply taking some kind of drug and getting into a wonderful state, but having to confront the rather harsh and um, objectionable reality of your daily life um, with even more difficulty. So it's quite clear here that the Buddha is not concerned and does not see the, the, the path that he teaches as one that takes us into these incredible states of mind, but does not enable us to live optimally and functionally and, I would say, wisely and lovingly in the world itself. So he leaves Alara Kalama 
and um, goes and seeks out another teacher called Udaka Ramaputta, and very much the same thing happens. It's not worth going into the detail. The only difference is that Alara, that Udaka Ramaputta uh, teaches him to practice what's called the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Clearly very subtle, but with the same problems as nothingness. Um, You can get there if you want, but it's not actually going to make a huge difference to transforming the quality of your life. And so he drifts on and he um, uh, then says, at the end of this section, he says, still in search, monks, of what is wholesome, seeking the supreme state of sublime peace, I wandered by stages through the Magadan country until eventually I arrived at Sanani Gama, near Uruvela. Now, Uruvela, you'll see, right at the bottom of the map, beneath the second A of Magadha, Uruvela, which is nowadays called Botgaya. So he, he goes from Rajagaha down to Uruvela, and it says Sanani Gama, the village of Sanani, which is on the banks of the Naranjara River. There I saw an agreeable piece of ground, a delightful grove with with a clear-flowing river, with pleasant smooth banks, and nearby a village for alms resort. I considered, this is an agreeable piece of ground, this is a delightful grove, and so on. And I sat down there thinking, this will do, and that will do for today. (laughs) So tomorrow... Um, we'll, we, will, we will explore what happens next uh, in terms of his, his awakening, uh, his enlightenment. So thank you very much. This talk was given by Stephen Batchelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 22, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive.